This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee, where the legislative session ended on Friday, but lawmakers will return to the Capitol in a couple of weeks for a special session on gambling. And the Seminoles have launched a new public relations campaign to try to build support for the new gaming compact between the tribe and the state of Florida. Today, the Seminoles, Hard Rock, and the people of Florida are prepared to do something even bigger for the future they share in the state they love. There will be big changes in the aftermath of the session. For starters, it's going to be harder to vote by mail because the governor will be signing Senate Bill 90, what critics call the voter suppression bill. We were proud of the election we ran, but obviously we want to stay ahead of the curve. I don't know when they're going to send it to me, but obviously it's something I approve of and we'll sign it. Ron DeSantis got pretty much everything he wanted this year. The voting bill, the crackdown on protesters, a bill to punish social media for deplatforming Donald Trump. To Democrats like Representative Bobby DeBose, this was the session where Florida issues took a back seat as Republicans focused on national politics. I think the legacy would be that the narrative here, we took on a national narrative as it related to um, HB1, the anti-protester bill, or Senate Bill 90, the voter suppression bill. These are all national narratives. One of the more despicable things the legislature did this year was to abolish the Lawton Child's Endowment Fund. We can only wonder what the late governor would have to say about this slap in the face. That's cool. Pull my finger. Today on Sunrise, an audio tribute to the man we called Walkin' Lawton, in his own words. We'll also have your daily calendar of political events and the story of a Florida man facing a $30,000 fine for an overgrown lawn. And now the top stories on Sunrise for Monday, May 3rd. This is Constitution Memorial Day, National Paranormal Day, and Melanoma Monday. On this date in 1901, fire destroyed 1,700 buildings in Jacksonville. In 1926, U.S. Marines landed in Nicaragua. They stayed there until 1933. It was the final chapter in the Banana Wars. Between 1899 and 1933, U.S. troops at various times occupied Cuba, the Dominican Republic, Nicaragua, Mexico, Haiti, and Honduras. We also invaded Panama and Puerto Rico. Governments were overthrown, thousands of Central Americans were massacred, and hundreds of American soldiers died, protecting the profits of Wall Street and the big fruit companies. On this date in 1948, the first broadcast of the CBS Evening News. It's the longest-running network news show in America. Douglas Edwards was your very first anchor. And on this date in 1988, 4,200 kilograms of Colombian cocaine was seized in Tarpon Springs. That's 9,259 pounds of Florida snow. The State Department of Health reported 3,841 new cases of COVID Sunday and 31 additional fatalities. That sounds better than some of the more recent reports, but it may not be as good as it sounds because Sunday is usually the day with the lowest number of COVID casualties because of the way the data is entered over the weekend. The pandemic has killed more than 575,000 people in the U.S. Our death toll here in the Sunshine State has reached 35,968. More than 6,300,000 Floridians are now fully vaccinated and more than 2.5 million are waiting on their second shot. The 2021 legislative session wrapped up Friday afternoon and Republicans had plenty of reasons to celebrate. A year ago, they were worried the budget would be a disaster because of the economic slowdown created by the pandemic. But Senate President Wilton Simpson and House Speaker Chris Sprouls say they ended up with a record budget thanks to the early reopening of businesses during the COVID crisis, not to mention billions of dollars from the federal government. By opening Florida earlier, um, our economy was coming back much quicker. We were in three to four hundred million dollars 
estimates every month. Um, but clearly the federal stimulus can't come in helps us bolster our one-time projects, as you saw with sea level rise projects, septic and sewer, wildlife corridors, amongst others, bonuses. So we're very proud of how the Florida um, economy is coming back. And with those one-time projects that we put in there, you know, we're looking at, I believe, we'll be substantially below 4% unemployment by the end of the year. So we're very proud of that fact. I think, I think that's well said. I think that, you know, the governor and, and his team deserve credit for keeping the state open. I think every time we came back, the estimates got better and better about revenue coming back in the state, which wasn't happening, which made our budget choices a lot easier. But the budget is not done yet. The governor still has the opportunity to use his line item veto to remove projects that were approved by the legislature. Last year, the governor vetoed a billion dollars worth of spending to prepare for the economic impact of COVID. But Senate President Simpson says that's not likely to happen again. I think the governor last year was uh, forced in a very bad position because of the pandemic and, and had record vetoes, a billion dollars, as you know. And I think the governor this year will look at this budget and see this is a recovery budget for the state of Florida. And when you look at the way the, the House and the Senate work together to spend these dollars, there are a lot of one-time dynamic projects here that's not only good for, count them up, wildlife corridors, the environment, the, the sea level rise, all of the things that are in this budget, I believe the governor will, will be fair in his application of the veto bill. Things really couldn't have worked out much better for the governor. His first priorities were cracking down on protests and putting new limits on voting by mail. He's already signed the protest bill and says anyone who opposes it pretty much does so at their own risk. Well, in terms of HB1, look, I, I, I think like that's a poor hill to die on. The fact of the matter is the people of this state want safety and security. And if you look at the provisions we're doing, I think that they're very important. Look, I can't control every municipal election in this state. But if you get a hold of defund police and someone wants to do that, we are protecting people against that. Even if your local government goes off the deep end, you're going to be protected. We're also making sure that we're holding people accountable if they're engaged in violent activity. So I think it's going to serve as a deterrent. Now, we took it very seriously last summer and did better than most of these states. But I think it's going to serve as a deterrent going forward. Um, I think that it was clearly something that was uh, smart to do. Other states are copying us. But look, if, if they want to be running against that, I mean, be my guest. Lawmakers also passed a bill to set new standards for policing. It's their response to the murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement. The governor has not signed it yet, but he says he is favorably disposed to the policing bill. So I've heard good things about it. I mean, I obviously got to review it. I met with uh, Bobby Powell and some of the folks in the Black Caucus the other day. Uh, they've obviously endorsed it. It seems like all the law enforcement groups are supportive of it. So I think it was collaboratively done. And so, you know, that's that to me is good vibes. I mean, if I have my friends in law enforcement calling me saying, whoa, 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 this is bad, then I would be really concerned about it. But I haven't seen that yet. DeSantis also knows there will be lawsuits over the protest law and the new election bill, but he says that is par for the course. Well, I think it's, uh, there's a cottage industry of lawsuits. That's what happens when you do this. You remember some of the things we've done in my first two years. There were a lot of suits, things like the um, implementation of Amendment 4. Uh, we were successful in that. I've been sued by a bunch of Scott Israel. When we removed him, we were successful there. So I think we're going to be good. The HB1 lawsuit I don't think is viable. Uh, I think we'll ultimately win that one. Um, and I think the election stuff we're done, understanding that, of course, there's always going to be challenges. But I think they were really attentive to some of the pitfalls, and I think that'll pass muster as well. 
While Republicans were celebrating at the end of the session, Democrats were just glad it was over. Representative Bobby DeBose of Fort Lauderdale is co-leader of the House Democrats, and he says 2021 will go down as the year they cared more about national political squabbles than actual Florida issues. Oh, man. Uh, the legacy of the 2021 session, I guess it's probably multifaceted. There's so much that happened. Um, there, there were a lot of good things that happened in this session, but there were a lot of troubling things that happened as well. I think the legacy would be that the narrative here, we took on a national narrative as it related to um, HB1, the anti-protester bill, or Senate Bill 90, the voter suppression bill. These are all national narratives. If you check around the country, and at least last I checked, 30, 36 states were dealing with similar legislation. So I think the legacy is, uh, unfortunately, the state of Florida has picked up uh, a national narrative that, in my opinion, will hurt many Floridians, especially communities of color. Um, but, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that there were some good things that happened. We had a good, healthy budget, not a perfect budget. Um, there are obviously other opportunities that we could have expanded or did, did more. But thanks to, you know, the current administration, um, you know, President Joe Biden, $10 billion really helps out a lot. And a lot of Floridians will see relief because of that. Lawmakers return to the state capitol in two weeks for a special session on gambling, and they'll be voting on a series of changes that will remake the entire gaming universe in Florida. One element in the mix is approval of a new gaming compact between the state and the Seminole Tribe that allows more casinos, roulette, and craps games, plus a statewide sports betting system that will be controlled by the tribe. It is a huge financial win for the tribe, so they've launched a PR campaign to try to convince the public that it's also a great deal for Florida. This is the audio track from their very first TV commercial. Amid a storm of challenge and loss, this Florida story gave rise to hope and our spirit to persevere. The Seminole Tribe of Florida and Hard Rock won the global icon for hospitality and entertainment. The other, unconquered resilience, surviving extinction, and poverty. Only to create tens of thousands of jobs, billions in economic impact, and billions more for vital government services. But quietly, without fanfare, the Seminoles and Hard Rock came through big for others, fighting hunger and disease, natural disasters, all to help and serve others. Today, the Seminoles, Hard Rock, and the people of Florida are prepared to do something even bigger for the future they share and the state they love. This relationship from the tribe is really going to be beneficial for the state of Florida. Sponsored by the Seminole Tribe of Florida. The Seminoles are offering to pay the state at least half a billion dollars every year as part of the compact, but many lawmakers are reluctant to go along with this massive expansion of gambling. There will also be legal challenges because of the provision in the state constitution that says any expansion of gambling has to be approved in a public referendum. The governor claims the compact was written so it will circumvent that requirement, but that's one the courts will have to decide. One odd thing the legislature did during the session was to abolish the Lawton Child's Endowment Fund, taking all $958 million and dumping it into a budget stabilization fund. GOP leaders came up with a unique argument for this sleight of hand, saying it would protect the endowment fund from being raided by future lawmakers. Kind of like saying, we need to steal it all now so it doesn't get stolen later. In the end, it was Senate President Wilton Simpson who sealed the fate of the Lawton Child's Fund, which is sad because he knew the former governor, who was known as Walkin' Lawton. 
I have been around long enough to know Walken Lawton. And um, I think he's a good man. I think what we did in the budget has no reflection at all on Lawton's house. Um, I think uh, Budget Chair uh, Stargell said it best. Maybe we come back next year and do something to really honor him in a different way. What we were doing by this legislation was cleaning up our balance sheet and making sure our base um, budget was um, taken care of. That's the sort of rationalization that Charles himself would have ridiculed. The governor was old school, proudly called himself a Florida cracker. He also described himself as the he-coon, the oldest, craftiest raccoon in the pack. Legend has it that while the young raccoons forage in the middle of the night, the wily he-coon knows the best time to hunt is right before dawn. So with that in mind, this is a good time to remember the greatest hits of former governor Lawton Childs. The old he-coon walks just before the light of day. Some time ago, Governor, you gave me the copy of a, a very good book entitled The Death of Common Sense. You need to read the book. We smoked them with the jawbone of an ass. It's a no-brainer. What kind of noise does the pig make? <laughs> oink, 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 oink. How about the cow? Oh, that's good. What does the lion do? Oh, that's scary. That's scary. There is no place for intolerance. Uh, it's a disease that uh, we can't and will not uh, tolerate. Let's face it, uh, I'm unpredictable enough that what I say today I might change tomorrow. It's a yin-yang, you know, thing or something. I just like to, once in a while, put my hand on it if I can find it in my pocket. We're just guessing. We'd be guessing on our Ouija board. I think what will happen to happen is events will have to get right. Uh, Saturn will have to line up with uh, Mercury and Venus uh, a little bit more. Sometime in August or before August. I mean, during the month of August, probably. What are you waiting for? What am I waiting for? Hell, that ain't long to wait, lady. <laughs> I'm not waiting on anything. <laughs> I was uh, almost a victim of assault. Uh, an ostrich uh, almost assaulted me, and I did not know I had that red a neck. I haven't uh, scratched myself on that question yet. I don't feel goofy. A lot of people have used terms like that, but uh, it's not something that I feel. <laughs> I don't give a damn. <laughs> That's cool. Pull my finger. You're getting to the point where uh, it's beyond my attention span. I've covered every governor in Florida since Reuben Askew, beginning in 1978, but Childs was by far my favorite, mostly because you could never guess what he was going to say next. And he genuinely cared about people, displaying the sort of empathy that has vanished from Tallahassee over the past two decades. That endowment fund was the result of Childs' long legal battle with the tobacco industry to force them to pay for the costs of smoking-related illnesses that were being dumped on taxpayers. Without Childs, there would have been no multi-billion dollar settlement with the tobacco industry. He was also the last Democrat elected governor in Florida and came from behind to beat Jeb Bush in 1994 by the narrowest of margins. Childs single-handedly held the Florida GOP wave at bay for eight years, and there are some Republicans who still haven't gotten over that, which I suspect is the real reason all the youngsters in the legislature wanted to tear down this last official tribute to the he-coon. If that fund had been named for a GOP icon like Ronald Reagan or Donald Trump, it would never have happened. 
Today's calendar of political events is a short one. The trustees at Florida Polytechnic University hold a remote meeting at 9, and at 10, the House Democratic co-chair, Evan Jenny of Hollywood, and Democratic policy chair, Representative Fentry Striscoll of Tampa, hold a media availability to discuss the impact of the 2021 session and look ahead to the special session on gambling. And finally today, a Florida man is facing almost $30,000 in fines for letting his grass get too long. The city of Dunedin imposed a $500 a day fine on 71-year-old Jim Ficken back in 2018, saying he was a repeat offender and that the grass in his yard was more than 10 inches tall. Nearly two months passed before Ficken knew he owed any fines. By then, the grand total was $29,833.50. Well, he refused to pay, saying he had not been properly notified that the man he hired to mow his lawn had died and that his own mower broke when he tried to use it on the overgrown grass. When the city tried to foreclose on his home, Ficken went to court, but after a two-year legal battle, a federal judge for the Middle District of Florida ruled against him, saying he has to pay the fines. By the way, his name is a dead giveaway. Ficken means fuck in German, and this Florida man is definitely screwed. That's it for today's episode of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg in Tallahassee, inviting you to join us again tomorrow as we plumb the depths of Florida politics. 